This is our third conference about uh, the first week, first time we had the class was about um, sacrifice being the highest form of adoration and adoration being the highest form of the virtue of religion. Last week we heard about our divine Lord who is the only adequate sacrificer, the only one who can pay the infinite debt for, debt for sin, and how he um, is now in heaven as our mediator, uh, constantly offering the prayer to his father of his five wounds for our remission of sin. While on earth, he's constantly offering his holy sacrifice made new over and over again on the altar. And finally, last week, we studied a little of how only the priest can be the sacrificer because he's the ordained minister. And that point will come, again, come up again tonight. But first, I'd like to return to our saint, who is kind of our theme of these classes for as long as her story lasts. Uh, that's Saint Philomena. Last week, we looked into some of the authenticity of her relics, her remains in the catacomb, catacomb of Saint Priscilla. I was telling you how the tiles, the three tiles which read Pax Tecum Philomena, actually are in the right order, and the grave has never been violated. And for that reason, the relics which are inside the grave are the true relics of the person whose name is on the outside of the grave. So this evening, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in the story of St. Philomena to some of the more well-known people we know, we know, and then I'll jump back again and uh, so forth. But the theme will be always uh, St. Philomena for as long as we study her life. Remember, of course, that her name, Philomena, means not just light, but daughter of the light. The light being our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, she was given that name by her parents after they, well, they converted to the true faith and then conceived a child. They were barren until that time, until they took the true faith. And um, they called her Light when she was born in honor of our divine Lord, who is the light of this world. And then when they baptized her just a few days later, they called her Philomena, meaning the daughter of the light. And when our Blessed Mother appeared to Philomena in the prison, when she was imprisoned by Diocletian at the age of 13, she was in prison for 37 days, and Our Lady came to her with her divine child in her arms, and um, she said, my daughter, you will be here another three days, and then we'll begin many tortures. You will be humiliated because of your physical state, but all of your humiliation will cause greater glory to my son. And she said, have no fear. Our blessed lady told her, have no fear. You have my name and you have my son's name. The more I study the story, the more I see that Philomena was something essential for the beginning of the church outside of the catacombs. But you have the name of, you have the name of my son you have, and you have my name. Uh, my son is light of the world. He's taken away the darkness of sin. I also am called moon and star of the sea and dawn, our lady. She has terms of light also, which come from her sun. The moon is a reflection of the sun. The sea reflects the light of the sky. Uh, the dawn is the, the beginning of the sunlight. Uh, but our lady has light insofar as she reflects that of her sun. And she said, you have our name, Philomena. So, you know, many Christians are going to come to the faith because of you and your sacrifices. Uh, and so that's what kept Philomena faithful for the different tortures we've heard about the last few uh, classes. So I'm going to jump ahead here to a saint who's probably the one most responsible for making Saint Philomena known. And that would be Saint John Vianney, or the Curie of Ars, in the 19th century at the beginning. St. Philomena's relics were discovered in 1802. Uh, the same relics arrived at her place in Mugnano of Italy in 1805, and then miracles started happening everywhere. So people were hearing about St. Philomena and St. Philomena, 
And uh, the curie of ours heard of her in France, and he right away started praying to her. Uh, so we're talking now about the 1830s by that time. And uh, you'll, we'll, we'll hear this story on another night, which was that of Pauline Jericote, uh, Venerable Pauline Jericote. She was the one who was the foundress of the Propaganda Fidei. Thanks to her, we have a whole commission in Rome, which is set aside for bringing the faith to the missions. And that's another story. But this woman became very, very ill, and she was already a friend of the Curie, Curie of ours. She was a French woman. She lived in France. She consulted uh, St. John Vianney regularly. And he said to her, she had a great sickness of the heart, heart disease. And she was dying. It was so obvious. He said, um, pray to St. Philomena, make a pilgrimage to Mugnano. If you study the geography, we're in, you know, France. And she has to travel over the Alps to go through Italy, get Italy, get down to the su southern part of Italy into Mugnano to visit the relics of um, St. Philomena, which she did. Amazingly, who knows how she did it in her physical state, but she did, she was cured. And the cure was authenticated by Pope Gregory XVI. Yes, Pope Gregory XVI. And for that reason, he canonized uh, St. Philomena. Until the time she was not, St. Philomena was not canonized, she was just working miracles. But thanks to the, the, uh, the, the uh, journey of uh, Pauline Jericote, the Pope finally canonized her, and she was saint. So this Pauline Jericote brought back to, well, eventually went back to France. Visit, visit, she, had, she had to stay with the Pope for a whole year first in Rome, so the Pope would be sure that this is the same woman he saw that was so sick, and he, she was already a friend of the Pope before this um, illness, because of the propaganda fidei. Uh, and uh, she stayed for, in Rome for a whole year and finally went back to France. She saw the curé, and she thanked him so much for the command to go visit the relics of St. Philomena, and she gave him a relic. Uh, just so you remember, the relics are you know, first-class relics, second or third. First are either bone or blood of the saint. Second are a part of the habit of the saint or something they were constantly in contact with, like the breviary or something that they use daily, some sheets of their bed or something like that. Uh, that's a second-class relic. And third-class class relic is anything we touch to the saint. So she brought back for the curé um, a first-class relic. He constructed an altar about the year 1837. And from there on out, well, actually, it had already, had already begun, but uh, he was a great devotee of St. Philomena. He's the one who sent Pauline Jericho to the St. Philomena to begin with. And um, all kinds of miracles happened in the church of ours, the Curie of ours, in St. John Vianney. And um, it's kind of an interesting um, relation there between... Saint Philomena, Saint Philomena and the Curie, he was so holy already that he was working miracles. But he was especially working miracles because he had the relic of Saint Philomena in his church, and, she, and he was the one making her so well known throughout the world. So many times he would cure someone, as soon as they started praising him, thank you so much for giving my sight back, or thank you so much for giving my, uh, my able, ability to walk again, or, he was embarrassed about the thing. That's how saints are. Uh, all he knows is that he loves God. If there are wonders happening, on, happening around him, it's nothing due to himself. That's what saints know. So it caused him great embarrassment. So the first thing he would say is, no, it, it is not I who have cured you, it is St. Philomena. And he would say things like, to no one, he would say, I wish St. Philomena would her, work her cures in other places so as not to bring all the fame to me. Um, so, uh, St. Philomena constantly performed miracles through the hands of the curie. Uh, this embarrassed him. This, however, did not dissuade St. Philomena from doing this. And so he blamed it, blamed all these cures on her. Blamed would be in quotation marks. And he would often say, I wish she would do her cures and miracles someplace else so as not to bring attention to me. Soon all of France was pray, paying devotion to her with churches in her name everywhere. 
uh, in the church of ours, they had on the average 14 cures per week, either due to St. Philomena or to St. John Vianney. Uh, the region of Langres in France alone had 12 churches in the name of St. Philomena. Uh, and, these, and her uh, cultus, the devotion to her, attracted many people on three dates in particular, August the 11th, which is her birthday in heaven, the day she arrived in heaven, May the 25th, the finding, which is the finding of her relics in 1802, and Sunday within the Octave of the Ascension, which is called the Patronage of St. Philomena. So, the year 1843 arrived. If you remember, I said St. John Vianney built the altar in her, honor, in her honor with a relic in 1837. 1843 arrived, and the curie was fatally ill. He had double pneumonia. On May the 3rd, he was too exhausted to preach. He retired to his humble room. The next five days, he became progressively worse. Three doctors consulted him and finally told him there was nothing more they could do for him. The confessor of the Curie of Ars was called and gave him last rites. The priest said, have you forgiven your enemies? St. John said, I don't wish harm to anyone. I have no enemies to forgive. The next morning, the Curie asked for mass to be offered for him at the altar of St. Philomena. While the Mass was going on, he was not present at the Mass. He was in his uh, private room. While the Mass was going on, at the very beginning, he was very anxious. But as soon as the Mass started, let's say, sorry, before the Mass started, he was very anxious. As soon as the Mass started, he became perfectly calm. During the Mass, he was seen to be whispering or murmuring with someone the whole time while a greater look of peace came over his face. Obviously, he was speaking with St. Philomena. As soon as the Mass ended, he joyfully announced that he was cured. And it was true. There was no more double pneumonia. The body was still very, very weak from all the malnutrition that happens in these things, but he promptly got up from his bed. He went to the church, knelt in front of the Blessed Sacrament to give thanks to God for the cure, and then he went to the altar of St. Philomena to spend a good long time in colloquy, uh, meditation with her. He said that at that time, at that colloquy uh, with uh, St. Philomena, she gave him thoughts and secrets about the love of God that he would retain until the end of his life. That's how close St. Philomena is to the Curie of ours. And thanks to him, all of us know about her. Um, when we say that about how St. Philomena, Philomena revealed secrets to him, gave him thoughts about the love of God until his dying day, that reminds us, reminds me very much anyway, of um, St. Paul, the epistle we're going to hear in a couple days, how being united to our Lord Jesus Christ in his imprisonment, he knew about the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of the Sacred Heart. But without that suffering, he would not have known. So sooner or later, all these saints, sooner or later, they overlap. And here's, here's we have St. Philomena overlapping with St. John Vianney, overlapping with St. Paul, the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, which they learn through their suffering. So very good. With the thoughts of St. Philomena in mind about um, suffering and sacrifice and loving God, we go into the holy sacrifice of the Mass again. Remembering that adoration is the highest form of sacrifice and our Lord Jesus Christ is the only adequate sacrifice. He's the only one can, that can pay the infinite debt of sin because he is God. He is infinite. And he pays that in the person of man because man is the one that sinned. That's how we're so grateful to the hypostatic union. The fact that the divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ informed the human nature of his body and soul and completely transformed it. It's due to that transformation that you and I are redeemed, that you and I can be connected to the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ and thus uh, ascend to his divinity. There is, uh, excuse me, we study the unbloody sacrifice of the altar, the unbloody sacrifice of the altar. 
Our Lord makes present his sacrifice of Calvary on the altar in an unbloody manner. This is the clean oblation that was spoken of in the Old Testament ever since Melchizedek until the time of our Lord Jesus Christ and until now. The clean oblation. Keep in mind what a person, a Jewish person, an Israelite person would have thought of sacrifice. Sacrifice is an animal. The best sacrifices are. It's bloody. Sorry to use this word. It's messy. Uh, it doesn't look so glorious, but one knows that he's offering up life as a representation of his own life for his sins. Whereas the sacrifice that you and I see is the clean oblation upon the altar. We see bread and wine, but we know the re that the reality is that is body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ on the altar. And Melchizedek uh, is the first one who prefigured the sacrifice of our Lord. Melchizedek is a priest and a king who lived the time of Abraham. And Abraham, as you know, is the root, the source of all Christianity. He's the one that was chosen to be the father of great nations from whom would come the Redeemer, from whom we are. That starts with Abraham. And Abraham himself was blessed by the king and priest Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, meaning that he's somehow greater than Abraham because the greater blesses the lesser. Melchizedek receives alms from Abraham, which is true. Uh, Abraham gave a, a donation to Melchizedek, and we know that donations go from the lesser to the higher. You all give donations to the church because the church is higher. Uh, and Melchizedek offered a sacrifice, which was bread and wine. Uh, not an animal, uh, not oil, not some kind of plant life. He offered bread and wine. In that bread and wine, he was already prefiguring the clean oblation of our Lord. And one of the titles of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It means he's greater than Abraham. It means he offers a sacrifice which is not bloody, the one that's on the altar. And it means that he offers the clean oblation. And furthermore, Malachi says, it is the clean oblation which is known to all the Gentiles, which is offered from the rising of the sun to the setting thereof. It means from the east, rising sun, to the setting thereof, to the west. The whole world sees the clean oblation of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the altar. And only we, as Catholics, know about that. Even the Jewish people, the Old Testament people, as close to God as they were, they, they are the chosen race. Physically speaking, humanly speaking, they are the chosen race. They've, received, they've refused the life of grace that our divine Lord offered them. And so now we see them as a, just a human and carnal race anymore. But they were once the human and spiritual race. Even these people, when they worshipped in the temple, the temple, which is one of the most glorious buildings ever made, with the sacrifices so ordained by God in the book of uh, Exodus, books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, um, even then, they have a carnal, carnal and exterior sacrifice. And St. Paul constantly refers to this. They have a carnal and exterior sacrifice. They do not have the offering of a contrite heart. They do not have the offering of a contrite spirit which is giving glory to God. They have a carnal and exterior sacrifice, whereas the Christian, since the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, has the interior, inter spiritual, and interior sacrifice. How is that? We come to Mass. We assist at Mass. We see the priest offering, sacrificing at the altar, but we see no blood. We, we smell no burning. You can imagine what the temple must have smelled like if uh, we're human beings. We like the smell of roasting flesh. It must have smelt uh, kind of desirable. And they would say there was the smoke and, and incense, type of incense being offered to God because they were not the ones principally who were able to eat from those sacrifices. But um, we don't see that. We don't smell it. 
we don't, physically we don't sense that sacrifice. And that is because even though it is a true sacrifice, there's no doubt about it, it's a true and physical, real sacrifice on the altar. Without it, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ would remain locked in time without being able to apply its merits to our souls. That's why our Lord insisted at the Last Supper with his apostles, do this in commemoration of me. You know, you must offer this sacrifice, otherwise it remains locked, stagnant, held in one place. And um, this is a true sacrifice. We don't, with the eyes, physical eyes, we don't see it, we don't smell it, we don't sense it. But we know from our, the words of our Divine Lord, it is a sacrifice. It is the sacrifice. It is spiritual and interior. It is making a spiritual and interior conversion of our souls. With the Jew, the Israelite, before the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, there was something spiritual about the sacrifice. St. Paul says that it was making reparation for sin insofar as it looked forward to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, which would make the final reparation for sin. But St. Paul says, but in itself it was not cleansing the conscience. It was not purifying the soul. It was making reparation for sin insofar as it was connected to the crucifixion. But it was not cleansing the conscience. He says, how much more will the sacrifice, the shedding of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, cleanse the conscience? And that is what you and I have. When we assist at, I'll say, the true sacrifice. This is not to say the sacrifice of the Israelites was false. I'm just saying that it has its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. When our Lord died on the cross, you know that the veil of the temple was torn in two. It shows that uh, there's no need for the temple anymore. From now on, the sacrifice of our Lord is open to all souls. And it also means uh, this sacrifice, until the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, left the Jewish people in a material world, in their material sins, material problems, the bondage of fear, is how St. Paul describes it. Whereas with the sacrifice of our Lord, we're freed from that bondage of fear and we're separated from the world and now we're living the spiritual life with our Lord Jesus Christ. Very good. There is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, uh, the people had to be faithful to the law and they had the bloody sacrifice which I just described to you. In the New Covenant, we don't focus so much on the law because we have our Lord Jesus Christ with his shedding of blood on the cross, that shedding of blood made present on the altar and therefore the souls are inspired to not just to obey the law, but the souls are inspired to do more and more whatever they can in order to um, give more glory to God. And try to think of it, try to focus on it for, we as, for us as Catholics. We live in an age, and it's been 500 years of this age already, where the Catholic Church, at least humanly and according to man, etc., is breaking down. All right? There's no, there's no use to deny that. But our Lord Jesus Christ is with his church. He'll be, he'll be with it to the end of the world, principally in his sacrifice, the Holy Communion, but in many, many other ways. Uh, so we're used to seeing Protestants and hearing Protestants and, and eventually, after several hundred years, to have a certain kind of respect for them that they persevere as much as they do. Um, I've seen Protestants protesting immoral things and bad things in the United States that the Catholics don't even care about anymore don't get up to do anything about it anymore. All right? So they're not praising them, just giving credit where credit is due. Here you are, here you have this poor Protestant who studies his Bible 110% of the day uh, as compared to a Catholic who has everything, who has transubstantiation, that's to say the changing 
of the bread and wine on the altar into the blood, body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has Christ himself with his real presence on the altar, the Catholic, and many times he doesn't even care about it. And much more so in the last 50 years because our theology and our doctrine has been watered down, confused so much to give us the idea that we believe just the, and only the same thing as Protestants believe, which is very unfortunate. But we have everything. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't give it as much enthusiasm as the Protestant does many, in many cases. So um, we're now in the New Covenant. When our Lord Jesus Christ insisted on this New Covenant, it was on the occasion of the Last Supper with his, his apostles. Uh, the Last Supper, as you probably know, has uh, three parts. Our Lord started with the Paschal Lamb, or the, you could say the ceremonial victim. And then from there, he went to the washing of the feet of the apostles. And then he concluded the evening with them with the institution of the Holy Eucharist. Now, it was necessary and not an accident at all that our Lord instituted the Holy Eucharist on the same night as it was necessary to eat the Paschal Lamb. The Paschal Lamb, as you know, had to be eaten entirely, from head all the way to the tail. And what they could not eat, they had to burn. So the idea of immolation is obvious. This lamb stands for, is the figure of, the Redeemer that will completely uh, spend himself shed every last drop of his blood to pay the price for our sin. So our Lord ate that Paschal lamb with his apostles, and then after the washing of the feet, they returned to the table, and he instituted the Holy Eucharist from some of the elements of the ceremonial meal itself. He gave them his flesh and blood. He instituted the Eucharist. He instituted the priesthood. And it's necessary they did that on that occasion to show us that the old covenant, what used to be more of a human sacrifice, a fleshly and carnal sacrifice, had been sublimated, had been lifted to the new covenant, which is not just a lamb whose blood is shed, but actually the flesh of God himself being shed, sorry, being, being offered and sacrificed. Uh, for our redemption. And that was the beginning of the new covenant. Now, there are many references in Holy Scripture, in the Church Fathers, in um, the writings of the Church, to insist that the elements of the chalice at the Last Supper were really the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he could, could not make that blood present if he wasn't going to shed that blood very, very close to the Last Supper. But the covenant, sealed in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, was already effective from Holy Thursday night. And we might think that's a little strange. We, we might think, well, wouldn't that have happened uh, not until Good Friday? when he really did offer his body and blood, when the veil of the temple really did get torn from top to bottom? And the answer is no. He was already making that covenant on the night before um, the crucifixion. Because that really is his blood in the chalice, as well as the, what appeared to be bread really is his flesh. Now, why do I insist so much on this? Like, it's such an important point. Of course, it's important. What's so great about this for us? What's so relevant about it for us? The answer is, when you assist at Holy Mass, and you see the priest breaking bread, so to speak, offering the Holy Sacrifice, you are seeing the same sacrifice that our Lord offered to his apostles, which was the covenant itself. It is no small thing. No small thing at all. And this is an important point for you also. The priest that offers the Mass 
we've studied this before. He is the Alter Christus, or the other Christ. That person can be very intelligent, or maybe not so intelligent. That person might be able to preach or not preach. That person might be a good administrator or a bad administrator. That person might be good in dealing with people, or that person might be very disagreeable in dealing with people. That person might be proud, or that person might be humble. But at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, it is our Lord who is offering that sacrifice, just as he offered on the cross, and just as he made a present at the Last Supper. It is the unbloody sacrifice. It is the clean oblation. It is superior to that of the Old Testament because it's not just the prefigurement, it's the reality, and it's offered for the whole world. It's not just offered for the people that are present at the sacrifice, as was the um, sacrifice in the temple. You know, when we think about it, when we're at Holy Mass, we are present at all those realities which the... Um, apostles were present for. This was not merely a communion celebration, but a sacramental state of sacrifice. The act of consecration at the Last Supper was truly a sacrificial act. This is my body, which has food under the appearance of bread, is broken for you. That is the sacrificial banquet. We must be careful with this term banquet or even sacrificial banquet. Uh, it's a term which has been abused in my estimation by the Novus Ordo Mass. They focus very much on supper, banquet, assembly, uh, community, etc. We hear all those words which in themselves are quite worthy words, but we keep saying, it's true, it's true, it's true. Yes, it's true. Where is the word sacrifice? <laughs> And you never hear it. And that's because of what we said last week also. Sacrifice denotes guilt. Guilt comes from sin. Uh, sacrifice means we need a priest who's going to find, you know, make, make reparation, offer sacrifice for us and to be repaired, etc. And those are terms that modern man no longer wants to hear. And that's been several hundred years in play. Until finally we have most of the members of the church saying we don't need sacrifice. Man is sufficient to himself to go to God. But um, sacrificial banquet, it is true. We assist at the sacrificial banquet. Our Lord is offering us his body and blood, just as he did with his apostles. But it is indispensable that this banquet be connected with sacrifice. It would have been, sorry to say it, it would have been completely empty if our Lord had given his body and blood supposedly to his apostles without having sacrificed himself, without being going to sacrifice himself, which shall be shed for you, which shall be offered for you. The separation itself of body and blood implies death. You know, when you're at, the, when you're at Mass um, and the body and blood are made present, in a mystical way, real presence is on the altar. In a mystical way, his body and blood have been made present in a separate way, causing what we call what we called a mystical death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the altar, just as he died really on the cross. Our Lord is the um, Lamb, which has been slain, who lives forever. That's a term that comes from the apocalypse. The lamb slain who lives. Sounds like a contradiction, uh, but it's not. Slain lamb means what happens to our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And that lamb is made present on the altar every day. And he continues to live in his sacrifice and through, through the Mass. He was slain on the cross and he continues to be made present on the altar every day, lying as if slain, but living victorious and triumphant. 
There's a prefigurement of that also in the Old Testament. The story you know, uh, which is Abraham, who finally had a son when he was more than 100 years old, and God had promised him you'll be as numerous as the sand of the sea, as the stars of the sky and sand of the sea. Uh, and there was no son. Finally, he had a son at over, over 100 years old. The son grew up to be a man, and God said, okay, prove to me that you love me, and I'll sacrifice him. All that was prefigurement of God himself offering his own son. Abraham, without hesitation, brings his son Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him, Mount Horeb. And just when he's about to put the knife in the heart of his son, out comes a ram to be offered instead. A lamb slain yet lives triumphantly. Isaac was already dead in a way. He had already, morally, he had already been sacrificed by his father. God stopped the hand of his father in order to make another sacrifice. But that's the death of our Lord Jesus Christ that was prefigured there. He was slain, but he continues to live. And the sacred heart of Jesus bursts forth one more time in his divine radiating flames of love by remaining upon the altar for his flock until this banquet finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. That is, until the end of the world. Remember how our Lord, when he instituted the chalice, he said, I will not, the next time I drink of this fruit of the vine with you, will be in the next world, will be in heaven. What he means is, you're going to continue to offer and offer and offer this sacrifice and it will have its fulfillment in heaven. The sacrificial banquet will become the time that you spend in heaven with me giving praise to God my Father, me with my wounds in his honor and you with all the suffering that you're going to do as part of your union with my chalice. So really, you know, when we assist at Mass, the... Um, all the generosity of our divine Lord for his Father in suffering and offering himself up becomes our generosity. In the liturgy of uh, St. James, it is said, let all mortal flesh be silent. Christ is about to be sacrificed and to be given as food to the faithful. Sacrifice and banquet. Banquet is never mentioned without sacrifice. Um, apologetic proof. Apologetic means um, a doctrinal proof that shows the truth, truth of the Catholic faith. From the first ages of faith, it has been the practice and doctrine of the Church to regard the sacrificial character of the Eucharist. This can only come from divine revelation. In the catacombs of saints, there are constant witnesses to the uh, meal and the sacrifice going together, the, 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 sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Mass, which is the banquet. Um, pictures of altars or tombs with um, fishes on the altar and loaves at either sides, showing that the one who's really present on the altar is our Lord Jesus Christ, but he's being slain on the altar, and that sacrificial food is being given to the faithful. The early Christians in the catacombs secretly offered the mysteries which made them seal their testimony with their own blood so that they could triumph over all the powers of the world and hell. And they had the strength to do this because Christ's sacrifice was their sacrifice. So the insistence this evening was on the superiority of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ compared to that of the Old Testament and how it's interior and spiritual, and how it's unbloody instead of bloody, and how it's the complete fulfillment of everything they ever um, offered in the Old Testament. So I think all of us have a very good and clear idea how important is the sacrifice. Without it, uh, no reparation from our sins. Without it, no cleansing of our conscience. Without it, no sanctification. And finally, no salvation. And sacrifice, I know I've come back to the word at least a thousand times in this one conference, but that is 
the point of reference. That's the substance, that's the foundation. Uh, you've probably heard it said uh, that um, the Holy Eucharist is the foundation of our faith. If you don't have uh, the truth of the Holy Eucharist, if you don't have, if you don't believe it, you're not a Catholic and you don't have what's necessary to save your soul. It is the foundation of the faith. And why is that? Because the Holy Eucharist is the sacrifice of our Lord made present for our sanctification. We totally depend on sacrifice. It's not just because that's the tendency of man, all races and all and whatever peoples have done sacrifice and therefore Christians have their own way of sacrifice too and, and that's why they do it it's just, it's just pure anthropology that's not true we have sacrifice because our Lord Jesus Christ is the sacrifice and that's the way he wants to, that's the way he unites us to his father opens the door to heaven again by this adoration so great for his father very good I insist on it because now I'm going to show you in the, la show you in the last few minutes what has happened to the sacrifice of the mass in the last 50 years of the church. Traditionally, the definition of the Mass was, and should always be forever, the unbloody sacrifice of the new law in which the body and blood of Christ under the species of bread and wine by a mystical immolation are offered by a legitimate minister of Christ to God in order to acknowledge his supreme dominion and apply to us the merits of the sacrifice of the cross. Excellent. We've got a priest who's the minister of God who offers the sacrifice of Jesus in the form of bread and wine to make reparation for the sins of the faithful in order that we can give the greatest praise to God. Excellent. What has become of this definition? since 1969. Here we go. The Lord's Supper, or Mass, is the sacred assembly or congregation of the people of God gathering together with a priest presiding in order to celebrate the memorial of the Lord. For this reason, Christ's promise applies supremely to such a local gathering of the church where two or three come together in my name, there am I in their midst. These are all words which uh, relativize sacrifice, priest, adoration, sanctification. They're all just reduced to terms which are not clear anymore and which in many ways are contrary to the first terms. Why, why would they have done that? In Vatican II, uh, their big emphasis is ecumenism and modernism. Ecumenism is to relegate the Catholic Church, put the Catholic Church on a level with whatever Christian doctrine, Christian pseudo-doctrine is out there. And modernism is to say that what was true yesterday is not true today. It just floats. So they don't want to use strong terms about defining what the Mass is anymore. They didn't even call it, call it the Mass. They said the Lord's Supper or the Mass. They avoid language like unbloody sacrifice, immolation, merits, etc. Because non-Catholics reject these teachings. Very good. That was the definition. Instead of talking about, okay, and I'll give you a quote here. We've quoted him a couple of lessons ago. Father Luca Brandolini says, this new definition, so he's a modernist, this new definition defines the Mass exactly because we begin with the assembly. Instead of beginning with God, we begin with the people who are in the pews. And in it, the sign of the assembly is returned to its first position. It means it should have always been that way, not focusing on the priest, not focusing on the altar, but focusing on the group of faithful. It's all very democratic, you know? The people, the people, the people. Sometimes in government, maybe that's a good thing. You know, the, the, the representatives need to be ministering to the people. Yes, but you don't start with the holy sacrifice of the mass that way. The most important thing is the assembly of the people. Um, the great sign which defines and qualifies the whole celebration according to the new order of the mass is the Eucharistic assembly. I still haven't heard the word sacrifice. All we're talking about is how the people get together. And Eucharistic, don't be deceived. That does not necessarily mean the host. 
Nikainen means the whole people together in so much as they are giving thanks to God. Just to um, continue going through that definition, that new definition, it's now called Lord's Supper instead of Mass, to deny that the Mass was a true sacrifice. And also to stress that what we, simply, what we have now is simply a memorial. We're going to recall how Jesus said this to his apostles. That's why when they offer the new Mass, there's never a um, sacred moment where the priest is only in silence speaking with the host who is God. You just have a pure narration of the story. No one gets a second to meditate. Uh, but, and he took bread, and he broke, and he offered it to his disciples, saying, this is my flesh. And after that, he took the chalice, and he, uh, and he said, this is my blood, which shall be offered of you for the, in the new covenant. Just this one long narrative story going on, and you don't get the sense that what he's saying is really affecting, what his, his words are not affecting what he's saying. Whereas in the traditional Mass, when you see the priest bowed over the altar in complete intimacy with God, you know that his words are changing that bread into body and blood. And the same with his words over the chalice, changing the chalice into, I say body and blood because actually all of Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ is in every particle of host and all of Jesus Christ is every drop of precious blood. But uh, so the chalice is changing to blood. It's so obvious. But it's not so obvious in the new Mass. Very good. Continue. They say, sacred assembly. The essence of the Mass is no longer sacrifice. The essence, as we said, of the Mass is no longer sacrifice, but only assembly. We don't come here to focus on that up there. We come here to focus on what's going on in the pews. That's why you might have noticed that in Novus Ordo churches, it's quite acceptable that people visit with each other, talk with each other before Mass begins, and then when you hear the ding-ding of Mass to start, that's kind of, okay, the movie's about to start now, so let's have everyone uh, lower their voices so we out of respect for this spectacle. Something like that. But no, here you know when you come to the church, the silence itself kind of shouts out to you uh, because we're in the presence of the sacrifice of our Lord. People of God, uh, this term, uh, we used to say the congregation or the faithful. Uh, now they insist on the word people of God. Why is that? Because by saying that, oh, so we used to say the church. By not saying the church anymore, we talk about the people of God, it leaves room to think that, well, anyone who's been baptized, whether even if they're heretics or schismatics, those are people of God also. So they use that word a lot nowadays to get rid of this idea of church congregation, faithful, those who accepted uh, all 12 articles of the Apostles', the Apostles Creed. Gathering together, all right, uh, instead of focusing on sacrifice, gathering together connotes assembling for the Lord's Supper, memorial. With the priest presiding, no, 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 it should be the priest offering priest presiding, even though those two words share a lot of consonants and vowels, and I don't know what all, the priest does not preside. The priest is offering sacrifice. And I already told you, he doesn't even have to be a great man. He can be a disagreeable man, not humble, not even that intelligent, but sorry, he's been made a minister, ordained minister of God. He is, he is offering a valid sacrifice. He's not presiding. He's offering a sacrifice without which no one is going to be sanctified. In order to celebrate, there's assembly that is gathered in order to celebrate. Uh, yes, giving the idea that the faithful, the people of God, are the ones celebrating the Eucharist. Maybe alongside the priest, but let's say with as much value and as much uh, effic efficacy effectiveness as the priest himself. It doesn't say that the priest is there to celebrate. It says the assembly is there to celebrate, the new definition. They're celebrating the memorial of the Lord, getting away from the, the idea of sacrifice and just saying we're going to commemorate our Lord. And, um, and Christ will be present because there am I in the midst. That's, I would say, the, um, what do you call it, the final slash, the coup de grace. They use holy words, 
and worthy words, because of the words from our Lord himself, to get away from other words of our Lord. It should be that they are gathered there so the priest can offer the eternal sacrifice for their sins. Instead, they say, the assembly is there to celebrate the Eucharist because where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. They've said nothing about sacrifice. They talked about some kind of spiritual presence of Christ or moral presence of Christ at the expense of mentioning Christ offering his body and blood for their redemption. We know that Christ is substantially present at the Mass in transubstantiation, the changing of bread and wine into the body and blood, by the words of consecration of the priest. But they have said in this new definition that Christ is not present substantially. They haven't said he's present at all. They've only said he's present by grace only. Insofar as where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. But they've not said that he's substantially present in the host. And what causes him to be present? The gathering of Christ's followers in his name. It's like, you know, this all depends on the faith, on the people. It doesn't depend on God. So uh, there are our distinctions of the new mass compared to the old mass, or the traditional mass. And um, to recap the class then, um, it's an unbloody sacrifice, clean oblation. It's for the whole world. It's superior to that of the Old Testament. It's um, internal and spiritual rather than carnal and um, exterior and carnal. And um, without this sacrifice, none of us would be cleansed. And unfortunately, since the... The new, mass has, the new mass has come out. These things are not insisted upon. Watering down the Catholic mass into a um, kind of a, a Protestant belief where Christ is present insofar as we're thinking about him. But that's about it. Very good. Uh, God bless you for your presence, and we'll say a prayer.